the nexus. What is a person? People are different. I do not mean one from another, although they are that, but they are different in kind to everything else in the universe, starkly different. It's not like cockroaches are a little different from ants, bees a little different again, hummingbirds different still, then parrots. Flying foxes still fly, but they're a little bit different, perhaps more so. Cats different again, koalas look more cuddly as we move along the continuum, then monkeys. And so the smooth transition of differences goes on to chimpanzees and bonobos, and we're just next, right? No. Everything was more or less fine until the claim that we're next, as if we're on the same continuum. We are not. In the same way that the leaf still growing on the branch is different in kind to the rocks below, or indeed the plant different to the bee in kind, so are we different to all other species. Yes, rocks and leaves have some similarities. Both are made of atoms. But so much for that. It is the differences that really matter. Life and non-life are different in kind. There are many ways school students learn of the differences. But the real difference between the living and the never was alive come down to the presence or absence of genetic information. Life grows, life reproduces, life passes on information from one generation to the next. And that information it passes on is in response to encounters with the environment. Plants and animals are different in kind too. Do we need to spell out the ways? I guess some might need to be reminded. Plants utilise photosynthesis. They are autotrophs. They can make their own food. Animals cannot do this. They must physically move from place to place in order to eat. Animals tend to have somewhat more complex nervous systems, while plants lack almost any sign of having sense organs. That's not to say they have none, but compared to an animal, it's not much. They cannot encode information about the environment around them and represent it in some way in a nervous system, which is to say, in a computer of a kind. Whatever the case, I labour this point because it is clear to people, I guess because they are taught this among other things, that there is a clear line to be drawn between the living and the non-living, and then within the living between the plants and the animals. Both the non-living and the living have many similarities and we could list them, so too with plants and animals. But does anyone doubt that it is the differences that are the really interesting thing here? But humans are unique for another reason. They often want to deny how unique they are as a species. We stand apart from all other life on Earth. On the one hand, many will immediately recognise, to the point of celebration, all the damage we can do to the planet, so we are taught. So on the one hand, we are different in kind. We are uniquely destructive, it is said. But even if we were to grant this, where does that capacity for being uniquely destructive come from? It comes from our capacity to control the environment around us. It comes from our capacity to be uniquely creative. But where does that come from? It comes from our capacity to explain it. To explain something means to give an account of what really exists out there in the world and how those things that exist have relationships between them which allow for the evolution over time of physical systems. A person can not only explain the world in which it finds itself, our world is such that it is always explicable by people. This follows from a momentous discovery in science about the relationship between physics and computation. Computation is that field of study concerned with how to calculate the answer to mathematical problems. It was once thought that such a field of study was itself part of pure mathematics. Being a part of pure mathematics, it was further thought that it could be discussed without ever worrying about what the laws of physics actually were. But how does a computer do what it does? According to some histories of this, and there are competing stories, Alan Turing was the first to formalise a system of computation. It's a simple idea. Take an infinitely long strip of paper. We're doing pure mathematics here after all, so we can have infinitely long strips of paper. And divide it into squares. Each square is either blank or it has a symbol on it. Now a computer on this view is now a device that can read whether or not there is a symbol on the square or not. And further, it can write a new symbol or erase a symbol before moving on to the next square. Whether the machine moves on to the next square, 
let's say to the right along the strip, or to the left, or stops, all depends on the program that the programmer has written for it, a set of instructions. Now the remarkable thing about such a device is that it can be instructed to compute anything that is computable. No matter what the mathematical problem, if it is computable, and not all mathematical questions are computable, not by a long shot, if it is computable, then the Turing machine can compute it. Indeed, Turing's whole purpose was to solve a problem in pure mathematics. Mathematics, given what most people thought then, and the popular conception now, is just a mechanical process of following rules, the rules of inference, or the rules of mathematics. So then it should be possible for a machine to just do the maths by following the rules, for whatsoever mathematical problem could be posed to it. For reasons beyond the scope of what I'm talking about here and now, that claim was shown to be false. Mathematics is not purely mechanical. There are just some mathematical questions the machine cannot find an answer to. For one reason, for some questions, it will just run and run forever without ever being able to find the answer. This is just one among many other issues involving the creativity of mathematicians as being central to discovery of mathematical knowledge. Now, one amazing thing about the laws of physics as we know them are that they are expressible mathematically as computable functions, Turing computable functions. In other words, the laws of physics are Turing computable by a Turing machine. And this is actually the answer to that long-standing question posed by Eugene Wigner about the so-called unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. The fact is that the laws of physics, the laws of nature, are not only mathematical in form, but Turing computable. So this is why mathematics is effective in the physical sciences. The physical sciences, governed by physical laws which are Turing computable, and a mathematical process, or proof, is a kind of computation. But a problem looms here. The laws of quantum theory reveal that matter, even something as simple as the motion of electrons moving in place around a nucleus, is not so simple. The problem of how to compute the position of the electrons at any time in the future given their present state, while computable, cannot be efficiently computed by a Turing machine. Which is to say, for problems like this, even if the Turing machine was operating at the speed of light, it might still take the lifetime of the universe to calculate where the electrons would be some minutes from now. As Richard Feynman quipped about the early pioneers of computation, they thought they understood paper. By which he meant, the Turing machine itself is actually a real machine. It is not merely imaginary or the product of pure mathematical intuition or something like that, whatever that might be. It must be made out of physical stuff, like paper. And that obeys the laws of quantum theory. So it was David Deutsch who in 1985 published a paper titled Quantum Theory, The Church-Turing Thesis and the Universal Quantum Computer. While Turing had assumed that his machine operated according to classical laws of physics in a kind of abstract space, Deutsch brought this down to earth. He applied the actual laws of quantum theory that govern the universe to Turing's machine, and a new mode of computation was born. The Turing machine was still universal, that did not change, but now it was made out of actual paper, or actual matter, and not an idealised kind of abstract paper obeying fictional laws, but rather stuff obeying the actual laws of physics, quantum physics. Strangely enough, the real world is even more powerful than Turing imagined because actual matter, actual paper so to speak, a proper understanding of the matter paper is made of, allowed for the efficient computation of things like electrons orbiting nuclei in atoms. What might have taken the classical universal Turing machine, the lifetime of the universe, might now take only minutes with a quantum computer for some tasks. Like, for example, simulating or modelling quantum systems like atoms or electrons interacting. Thus was the birth of quantum computation, an entire industry and a race to building the first universal quantum computer, which we still do not have, but we will one day, because it is physically possible. So if we just keep on correcting errors and improving our knowledge and technology, whatever is not prohibited by the laws of physics is possible, given the right knowledge. But what this also means is that anything that exists in physical reality can be simulated by a quantum computer. Atoms can be. Stars, solar system and galaxies can be. Whole universes can be. And anything in them, anything including people, including their brains. The brain of a person is a physical system. Whatever it is doing, it is doing according to the laws of physics. And because of this, it can, in principle, be simulated by a quantum computer. 
Now, this might very well mean a quantum computer of the distant future could simulate every atom in a human brain and therefore replicate the processes in a human brain inside of a quantum computer. What this might be like for such a simulated brain is anyone's guess, but we should not deny that such a simulation would be a person. A person is the software running on the brain, so a simulation of a piece of software is that piece of software. So a simulation of a person is a person. So therefore, a moral hazard is before us here that we should be eager to solve long before we try to do such a thing. Would switching off the simulation be like putting the person to death? Would switching it on be a form of torture? Absent human-like senses, would the person in the simulation be in a terrible nightmarish void of nothingness or utter confusion like a terrible but unending acid trip, somehow coupled with the knowledge that one is being simulated? Would that person in the simulation have all the memories of the physical brain that it has just simulated? Presumably so, and presumably that is reason enough never to try the experiment in precisely this way. But it may be, and we expect it to be the case, that simulating every single atom in a brain would not be needed to simulate a person. Instead, we just need to simulate that part of the brain that is doing the actual computations. In particular, the necessary parts of the brain that are able to conjecture explanations of everything else. That is what a person is, after all, a universal explainer. If we can simulate just that part, that is enough in order to simulate a person, in order to create a person. But we have very little idea, of course, precisely where in the brain and how these computations are performed, nor, more importantly, what the program is that instructs the brain to compute from one moment to the next. Which is to say, we do not know what the mind is in terms of what the code might be, or what the algorithm might be, written to capture the process that is the mind. The process that generates knowledge, creates explanations, seeks to comprehend the world around it, these are all synonymous, and we do not know what the code for any of them are. A person, uniquely, unlike everything else in the known universe, can create explanations. Those explanations are a sign of the person gradually coming to comprehend the world in which it finds itself. What does it mean to comprehend something? Understanding. To comprehend or understand something is to complete a certain kind of computation. That is, after all, what the brain is doing. It is computing things. That part of the brain that deals with computing models of the world, or explanations, is the software more commonly referred to as the mind. Not all of the brain is a mind, conjecturing explanations. Much is dealing with largely unconscious processes, monitoring sleep cycles, whether one is hungry and so on. But the mind does seek to understand, which means it seeks to create inside of itself some kind of model of what is outside, as well as inside. This is the sense in which we say that if the laws of physics are comprehensible, they must be capable of being embodied in another physical object, the knower. If the laws of physics were such they could not be embodied elsewhere, like the mind of a person, then this would mean the attempt to comprehend the laws of physics would be impossible. But this is not the world we are in. We are in a world where computation can be universal. There can be devices that can compute anything that is computable. And the laws of physics are computable. They consist of computable mathematical functions. That simply is provably the case. There is nothing in the standard model or quantum field theory or general relativity, the laws of thermodynamics, constructor theory or string theory, if you want to go that way, that contain within them non-computable functions. The functions used by physics are computable. The laws of physics are computable. As such, a computer can be programmed to simulate what the laws of physics are doing. One such computer is the human brain. The human brain, being able to explain things in the first place to create knowledge, is thus able in principle to comprehend, to understand, those laws of physics. We might also wonder, along with the British historian Lord Macaulay, who wrote in response to the pessimists of his time, on what principle is it that with nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us. We could paraphrase that wonderful quip to, how is it that with nothing but simplifications and unifications behind us, we are to expect the wall of complexity and incomprehensibility before us? In other words, our grand and deepest theories explain more, become more unified and are not impenetrably complex, despite what we are taught at school and university and the way in which we are taught those things. Understanding is just a physical process. It is, in truth, identical to the act of creating the knowledge in the first place. That aha moment people get when they understand something is precisely the same feeling as the scientist who gets it for the first time ever. It is just different in degree, perhaps, not in kind. The first person ever 
Einstein, to understand that accelerations and gravity are two sides of the same coin, that, for example, an elevator which is stationary on the ground will cause the occupants to experience precisely the same sensations as the same elevator in deep space accelerating at 9.8 metres per second per second. This is known as the equivalence principle between gravitation and acceleration. He called this his happiest thought. Now, if you understand that same principle, you may have a happy thought too, a happy sensation of comprehension. Of course, it's tempered by the fact that, well, firstly, you're not the first ever to have understood that. And secondly, Einstein may, of course, have understood things a little more deeply because he'd been pondering that same problem for hours a day for years at a time. And so his happy thought was probably deeper, but not different in kind, whatever the case. Understanding is creating knowledge, and creating knowledge is a process that minds do. It is about modelling, being embodied in a mind. This is where we talk about self-similarity, the idea that a mind can contain within it a working model of the rest of physical reality to some arbitrary degree of accuracy. We are always scratching the surface, so the model is never perfect, but in principle, anything that exists can be represented or embodied in the mind of a person, including the person. This is the self-similarity part. A part of a person is just like, in some respects, the rest of everything else. And it becomes more and more like the rest over time as it learns more. So I should just pause here and have a little diversion on this concept of self-similarity. And self-similarity is a concept out of mathematics. It's often used when discussing things like fractals. Fractals being these patterns that emerge from rather simple mathematical formulae where no matter how much you magnify a part of the fractal, it looks the same as the part of the fractal that was not magnified. It continues to repeat itself in a sense that the smaller parts are similar to the larger parts of the fractal. Now, in physical reality, we have things like this as well. Coastlines, for example. The more that you magnify the coastline, the more that it looks like the coastline from a greater distance away. It's self-similar. It's similar to itself. Now, the kind of self-similarity that is invoked in the work of David Deutsch when it comes to knowledge and the laws of physics is deeper than this. It's about how structures in the mind are similar to other parts of physical reality. And this is a kind of unique aspect to the minds of people. The example that's used by David Deutsch is a wonderful one. He's used it in his TED Talks. He uses it in the beginning of infinity, where he compares our physical understanding of what's going on with a quasar. A quasar is an extremely distant, very luminous object, which we think is a black hole gradually consuming stars. And as a consequence of this process of a black hole consuming a star, a very violent high energy process, vast quantities of energy and light are produced. And we can detect that from here on Earth. We can see using our telescopes, these extremely distant objects, quasars, quasi-stellar radio sources, more luminous than entire galaxies. Our most powerful telescopes can see these quasars. What does that have to do with self-similarity? Well, let's consider our knowledge of quasars. Let's consider our understanding of what a quasar really is. Our understanding of what a quasar really is, is, as I described, a black hole consuming stars. And as a consequence, the accretion disk, which is the disk of material that is falling into the black hole, is rotating so quickly that it creates magnetic fields. The reason it creates magnetic fields is because this gas that is spiraling into the black hole is ionized, ionized gas. Ionized gas means you have an electrical current of a kind. An ion is a charged particle. So lots of them moving together constitute an electric current. And all the way back in the 1800s, we had people like Michael Faraday explaining how moving charges, like electrons, or in this case ions, can generate magnetic fields. These magnetic fields that are generated cause the production of jets of material that head in all directions, but in, in our case, towards the Earth, which we can see, which we can detect, and which allow us, of course, via our telescopes, via the detection of this light, to thereby understand the process which is producing this phenomena that we see. So, out there in reality, we have this thing called a quasar, which is 
an extremely violent, unusual object. And as David says, the physics of the quasar could not be more unlike the physics of the brain. What's this got to do with self-similarity? Well, despite the fact that the physics of the quasar is so different to the physics of the brain, nonetheless, there's something in the brain of uh, the relevant astrophysicist with the relevant knowledge that is similar, similar to the quasar. What's similar? The mathematical relationships of the parts of the explanation describing and explaining what's going on in that quasar is similar to what is actually going on with the matter in the quasar. The matter in the quasar is obeying physical laws. And those physical laws have mathematical relationships between them. The relationship between the physical forces and the matter, what is physically going on on the other side of the universe in that quasar is replicated and similar to what's going on between the abstract ideas and the mathematical relationships between those abstract ideas in the mind of a physicist who understands the quasar. And as we come to understand quasars more and more, the fidelity or the accuracy with which that explanation comes to resemble the actual quasar out there increases over time. We gain a more accurate model as we correct the errors in our understanding of that thing over there. So this is what self-similarity is, that structures separated not only by distance, but separated by the kind of matter and relationships that make them up. In other words, the relationships that make up what's going on in the neurons inside the brain and the relationships between what's going on with the particles of accreted material from the star being consumed by the quasar come to have a similarity between them. Not so much a superficial visual similarity, but rather a deeper similarity. There is a one-to-one -one correspondence between the ideas of the astrophysicist coming to understand the quasar and the physical processes going on inside the quasar. Now, there's a further way in which this is self-similarity of the universe. Namely, not only does the astrophysicist over time come to have a visual and mathematical representation, a model of the quasar in their mind that increases in its accuracy over time as the astrophysicist comes to learn more about that quasar, but this is true of every physical process in the entire universe. Everything that we begin to learn about, we are creating models of. So we are creating models of all the other stuff that's out there in the universe. Inside of human minds, there are models of the rest of physical reality. The human mind is coming to understand with increasing fidelity over time the rest of physical reality. So the mathematical relationships that exist out there between physical objects are coming to be represented by abstract objects inside the mind of physicists. And a further level of self-similarity is the human being, the person, is coming to understand all the stuff out there and the stuff that's in here as well. We come to understand our own psychology better over time as well. This is, of course, just in its very nascent beginnings, our understanding of our own mental state. But as that increases as well, then we kind of have this feedback between the self-similarity in our minds of the rest of physical reality, as well as ourselves, which are also part of physical reality. It's kind of a recursive learning that's going on. And so we are becoming more and more similar in terms of our knowledge, to the rest of objective reality out there. These two things are coming to resemble each other in deep, fundamental ways. Again, we do not have a very good explanation of exactly what a person is, but a person is made of matter, obeying physical laws, and so that matter can be, in principle, simulated. Because the laws of physics are Turing computable, and understanding is just a kind of computation, it is something minds do, this means the laws of physics are such that they mandate their own comprehensibility, which is an astonishing fact. Logically, it did not need to be this way. It is not logically necessary that the laws of physics be computable, but they are. That is a contingent, empirical fact about our world. The laws of physics could have consisted of functions not computable, or the laws might have been such that computation was not possible, or that universal computation was not possible, or quantum theory was false in all sorts of ways, or it could have been that there were two substances in the world, matter obeying physical laws, and spirits in the spiritual world and the soul that doesn't, that operate 
generated by means other than physical processes. Now, some people do insist on this, it should be said. Whenever anyone says, understanding is not computing, they are appealing to the supernatural. They are saying that something a mind does is not physical, not governed by the laws of physics. But the rest of us are scientific realists. We defer to the best explanation. We do not jump to supernatural ideas because we do not like the sound of what conclusions follow from our best scientific theories. We take our best scientific theories seriously. And so that matter can be, in principle, simulated because the laws of physics are Turing computable. And understanding is just a kind of computation. It is something minds do. This means the laws of physics are such that they mandate their own comprehensibility. So let's unpack that claim, that the laws of physics mandate their own comprehensibility. Well, we have to begin with the notion that there is this law of physics. There is this law of physics proven mathematically by David Deutsch in his seminal 1985 paper. Now that, that paper, let's just remind ourselves of that paper. It's titled Quantum Theory, the Church-Turing Principle, and the Universal Quantum Computer. Okay, so let's just consider what the Church-Turing Principle or hypothesis is. Uh, what Turing said, the way Turing wrote it, and I'm just quoting from David's paper, he said, every function which would naturally be regarded as computable can be computed by the universal Turing machine. Okay, so that's what Turing said uh, with respect to his principle. All computable things can be computed by a Turing machine, by a computer in other words. It almost sounds like a tautology. It's a principle. It wasn't proven until David proved it with this paper. And how did he prove it? Well, he proved it by assuming, rightly, that computers have to be made of stuff. They have to be made of matter. The matter obeys the laws of physics. What are the laws of physics? The quantum laws of physics. Now, does that mean the quantum laws of physics are the final forever word on what the laws of physics are? No. So what he's doing is using our best knowledge of what the laws of physics are now. It could be wrong, but what else can we do? It could be that general relativity is wrong. It could be we're all living in a simulation. All these silly claims about we could be wrong. Of course, we always could be wrong. But we don't make much progress assuming we're wrong unless we have somewhere better to jump to, unless someone has a better idea. Simply assuming that our best knowledge is wrong doesn't get us very far unless we have something better to replace it with. So assuming quantum theory is correct, then assuming that real physical computers obey quantum theory, applying quantum theory to computation, we can make a few other claims. Like, for example, the laws of physics consist of Turing computable functions. So this just simply is the case. All the ways in which we express the laws in quantum theory, and elsewhere by the way, but in quantum theory in particular, is via computable functions. It's not like there's a law of physics in quantum theory that is not computable. It's computable. Which means, given that all matter conforms, obeys quantum theory, then that means any physical process that happens anywhere in the universe at any time is going to be able to be computable by a Turing machine. Why? Because a Turing machine, a universal Turing machine operating via laws of quantum theory is going to be able to simulate any physical system in the universe made of physical stuff. Because that physical stuff is obeying the laws of quantum theory, the very laws which themselves are computable. As David says in his paper, he says, every finitely realizable physical system can be perfectly simulated by a universal model computing machine operating by finite means. Now, this, by the way, has been amended, and I think he was, I'm not sure, I think he was required to put something like that in there by an editor or something. But in fact, the better way to phrase that sentence is that every finitely realizable physical system can be arbitrarily accurately simulated by a universal model computing machine operating by finite means. In other words, 
every finitely realizable physical system. So every physical system that's out there, okay, everything that really exists out there in the known universe can be simulated to whatever degree of accuracy you like by a universal computing machine, okay, a, a quantum computer can do this. Because inside of the quantum computer, you could have a simulation of an atom, for example. Now, this could be done by a classical Turing computer. You could have an atom simulated inside of a classical laptop. Problem is that it's not going to be very accurate at all. It's going to be very, very slow in order to calculate things like where the electrons are from moment to moment. Why? Because where the electrons around a nucleus are from moment to moment is governed by the laws of quantum theory. And it says that there are many, 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 many places that the electrons can be from moment to moment as they orbit the nucleus. This is one of the great insights of quantum theory. So you're presented with a problem that although a normal computer, a classical computer, a classical Turing machine operating according to the laws of classical physics would be able to simulate an atom, if you want to predict where the electrons are going to be a minute from now around that nucleus, what you're going to find is that your classical computer is going to grind to a halt. All the possibilities that come together to enable you to predict the position and the velocity of these electrons as they're going around the nucleus from moment to moment, it's going to exponentially spiral into and uh, just a vast number of computations which will slow down your computer. So if you want to calculate where the electrons are going to be a minute from now, your computer is going to take years, perhaps the lifetime of the universe in order to do that. However, if you have a quantum computer, it can do it efficiently. So if you want to predict where the electrons are going to be a minute from now, perhaps it can do that calculation in a few minutes or in a few seconds, something like that. It can do it efficiently. It's not going to take the lifetime of the universe to do that because it can take part in this quantum parallelism, this, this different mode of computation which quantum computers allow for. Now, extend that argument to any physical system, not just an atom, not just trying to predict where the electrons are going to be around an atom, but now extend it to ensembles, okay, collections of atoms working together. Lots of atoms such as would exist in a human brain. So a, a quantum computer, in theory, could simulate the operation of a human brain. Of course, this is unfeasible right now, but in principle, in principle, it's physically possible for a quantum computer to simulate a physical brain. Therefore, a human being can be simulated, a, a person can be simulated inside of a quantum computer. And everything that a human mind can do, everything a human brain can do, can be simulated by a quantum computer. What are some of the more interesting things that a human brain can do or a human mind can do? Well, probably the most interesting thing it does for our purposes and our discussions, what we're talking about with the creation of knowledge, is comprehend things, understand things, create explanations. So this particularly unique, interesting capacity of the human mind namely the capacity to understand things, in particular, the capacity to understand the laws of physics, that's just one thing that the human mind can do, can be simulated by a quantum computer. Because a quantum computer can simulate any physical system, including the human brain, including the human mind. Comprehension, understanding, is a kind of computation. It's a thing that the human brain does. Now, the laws of physics mandate everything that can be done, right? Everything that can be done physically in the universe is something that has been mandated to be done by the laws of physics. The laws of physics have mandated, have said, that orbits are approximately circular around the sun. That's one thing. The laws of physics are such that if I drop an object here, it will go towards the ground rather than rise up towards the sky. That's mandated by the laws of physics. The laws of physics mandate that electrons will repel each other. They mandate that electrons will be attracted towards protons. Positive attracts negative. Okay, there's all these things. Anything that happens is mandated by the laws of physics. Mandated or another way of saying that is determined. Determined to happen. Everything that happens is determined to happen. Now, this is not a full explanation of everything that happens. It's, it's, it's a very, it, it, 
it doesn't get us very far to say that things are determined or mandated. For example, the laws of physics are such they determine that whatever happens out there in physical reality was determined to have happened by those same laws of physics. In other words, the creation of the city of London was determined by the laws of physics. But if you want to understand why the city of London was created, that's a wrong level of analysis. Trying to say, well, the laws of physics mandated that London would be there eventually. doesn't tell you much about the reasons why London actually happened. It just says that London doesn't obey supernatural laws. It obeys physical laws. It was determined to be there. If you want to really understand why London is there, then you'd have to talk about history and politics and wars and cultures and etc. etc. in order to get a full understanding, as full as we can, of why London is there, rather than just saying it was determined to be there. What's that got to do with this? Well, we're just saying that comprehension, we can comprehend stuff. We can comprehend stuff. We have comprehended stuff. That capacity to comprehend was determined by the laws of physics, mandated by the laws of physics. The laws of physics have allowed for comprehension to exist, comprehension of everything that has been comprehended, some of which is the laws of physics. We've been able to understand the laws of physics, the laws of physics as we know them, as we understand them. That's been mandated by those laws of physics. Now, you might very well say, well, this process can't go on forever. Now, again, again, go back to what Macaulay said. On what principle is it that with nothing but improvement behind us, we're to expect nothing but deterioration before us? And, and, and the paraphrase, which I, I, I took from David Deutsch, to be honest, David uh, paraphrased this to say, how is it that with nothing but simplifications and unifications behind us, are, do we expect a wall of, are we to expect a wall of complexity and incomprehensibility before us? In other words, the laws of physics hitherto that we have gradually come to discover over time have always revealed themselves to be comprehensible. Our most complex laws of physics at the moment are comprehensible. This has always been the story, and we have continued to understand the laws of physics. So to say that some law of physics in the future is going to be incomprehensible, and this is, a strong, this is an argument that is made by so many public intellectuals, is a belief in the supernatural. It's a belief that there will be something that is mandated to be incomprehensible, by those same laws. But the best we know right now, and that's again, all we can go on is the best that we know right now, is that the laws of physics as we know them mandate their own comprehensibility. Because comprehension is a computation. It's something that minds do. The mind as it comprehends has comprehended quantum theory and computation. And marrying these things together, all physical processes can be computed by this universal quantum Turing machine, the universal quantum computer, Deutsch's creation of the theory of universal quantum computation, that such a quantum computer can simulate the operation of any other physical system in the entire universe, including a brain, which can comprehend the laws of physics, which themselves are comprehensible by that brain, and so therefore the laws of physics that allowed for brains to come to comprehend things mandate their own comprehensibility. So this is an important aspect of human nature or the question of what a person is. A person is an entity able to complete computations. A person is made possible by the fact the laws of physics are computable. But more than this fact, a person is able to create explanations of the rest of physical reality. We have then a confluence of two of the deepest strands in the fabric of reality. The theory of computation and the theory of epistemology. A person is to be found at the crossroads of these. Their brain is a computer running software of a critically creative kind that is able to generate explanations. It is a unique kind of computer. The hardware is universal, a small ask after all, for all we needed was paper and the ability to read some symbols, and our brain can do that and far more. But the software is universal too. It can comprehend what is comprehensible, and the laws of physics are comprehensible, and it manages this by conjecturing, guessing what might be so, and then criticizing via a method of comparing that guess to physical reality. It tests the guess. 
And so, over time, the mind comes to represent the rest of physical reality to increasing accuracy over time as it learns more. How did the brain and mind come into being? By that other deep thread of the fabric of reality, evolution by natural selection. Now, we do not know why it is that blind evolution seems to have tended towards increasing complexity. It seems to have wandered seemingly aimlessly towards complexity. After all, for the overwhelming majority of the history of life on Earth, very little was done with DNA. For billions of years, nothing more complex than bacteria multiplied in the oceans and on the land. But then, an explosion of complexity did happen, and more than once. Ultimately, the emergent and yet fundamental principles of evolution by natural selection led to genes for explanatory creativity surviving. And this then allowed for memes to be not only encoded in the minds of people, but allowed for a process of evolution of those memes. A variety of memes that make a person a person, both rational, irrational, and anti-rational. But importantly, the rational memes, those memes that allow for fast error correction of ideas, and thus objective improvement of the knowledge of their holders, has evolved. A human person then has evolved via a process of neo-Darwinian selection, and then that person has a mind which contains memes subject to the selective pressure of criticism, so that some memes do not survive, and new ideas can be created. We people therefore find ourselves at the junction now of three threads, evolution by natural selection, the theory of computation and universal computation at that, and the theory of knowledge, the capacity for universal explanation by the means of conjecture and refutation. But people persist over time while also in a constant state of change. As the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus said in around 500 BCE, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river, and he is not the same man. But he is, is he not? Were he not, no one would ever be responsible for anything. Are we constantly changing? If so, we are not the same person as we were a moment ago. But if we are responsible then something must persist over time to say that we are the same person who stole the loaf of bread or told the lie yesterday. Here we get into questions of continuous change, time and constants. Something does indeed remain the same about a person from moment to moment. That creative software running on the hardware that is the brain is a constant from moment to moment. Our capacity to explain the world around us does not change. In some deep sense, it is who we are. In or out of the river, this is a constant. While much else might change, the atoms in our bodies and the memories and ideas we have. That remains the same. That is the defining characteristic of a person. And in that sense, we are, all of us, unchanging in a sense, and all of us the same. As that program that is our mind searches for new explanations and answers, it does so because it, we, all of us, lack an infinite amount of knowledge. As Popper said, there may be great differences between us with regard to minor details of what we may perhaps know, yet we are all equal in our infinite ignorance. That remains constant as well. Who are we? Certainly we are in part our memories, the ideas we have that motivate our behaviours. We are where we direct our attention, that innate capacity to explain, ponder, consider and reflect. We are responsible for where we turn that attention. And if we learn the lesson of the importance of quiet reflection, then we are responsible for those occasions when we do not. We are constant in our capacity to explain. We are constantly changing in the ideas that we have. Are we more to be identified with our ideas at any one time or our more fundamental nature of being able to generate ideas in the first place? We are unavoidably both our ideas and the capacity to generate them. We are both the same as we step into and out of the river, and yet different. This is not a great contradiction, for the final strand, quantum theory, tells us all physical objects in the universe exist in a multiverse, and this means a person at this instant is actually uncountably infinite, fungible, entirely identical instances of oneself, like an electron. An electron at any one place, at any one time, consists of infinitely many, uncountably infinitely many, fungible, entirely identical instances of itself. All identical, that is, except that in a moment, some measure of those electrons will do different things. They will go left rather than right. And so then the original infinite number of electrons will partition or differentiate itself into two infinite groups. Both are infinite, so the total number has not changed. And nor is any group of those 
the original or the two groups it splits into, different in number. They are, after all, infinite in size. The same is true of a person. A person, as they sit there and listen to this, is actually a multiversal object. You are not a single person in a single universe. You are uncountably infinite many instances, all identical. But for any choice or indeed any quantum event, you will differentiate into groups. Each group will still contain uncountably infinite instances. If there are two groups, then there will be one group of infinite fungible instances doing one thing and another group doing something else. But you, as a matter of fact, are not one single instance but many. All those fungible instances have the same memory and are conjecturing the same ideas until they don't. And it is then that the conscious experience differentiates too. You are conscious only ever of one set of infinite fungible instances. Your copies doing something else, they are conscious of something else. So you are not them. Quantum theory tells us something deep about the nature of personhood. People are more than what we think or what we can observe as a matter of introspection. We too are multiversal and we have evolved such that we can generate knowledge about this multiverse and knowledge tends to cause itself to get replicated, to remain instantiated once it is created. We are forming about us knowledge of how to remain in existence in the multiverse. We, our knowledge, is thus connected to the multiverse because the measure of universes in which knowledge is created tends to increase. Knowledge causes itself to remain instantiated in physical reality. That is its nature, and it is our nature to create it. We are striving to remain in existence. We are people. We are gradually gaining a high-fidelity understanding of all the rest of it. And all the rest of it has come together to bring us into being. A person is at the nexus of all the strands in the fabric of reality. Now, there is something lurking here in understanding the mind as a computation of a kind. It is the case that the brain is hardware, and on this hardware runs the software, which I refer to as the mind, which many people refer to as the mind. However, we can't be identified with the software. The software, after all, can be instantiated in any number of physical forms. So if we knew what the code was, so to speak, for a human mind, we could write it down on a piece of paper. But that would not be a person. And the reason it would not be a person is because it's not doing anything. If we take the disc, the, the, the compact disc or the DVD, or these days, of course, it's kept in the cloud somewhere, but in the old days, you used to be able to have a disc which contained upon it you know, PowerPoint for Windows or Keynote for Mac. The piece of software could be stored on a disc. But insofar it was, as it was the software, it wasn't doing anything until you installed the software and ran the software. The software had to be running before it was actually doing anything. So whatever the software is for a person, it has to be running in some way. So the software for a mind has to be instantiated in the brain. That's one thing. But then it also has to be running. It has to actually be operating for it to be a mind, which makes things all quite complicated. And this is where we really come up against the very edge of what we know. A human being is software instantiated in neurons. But obviously, we're not identical to our neurons. We're something emergent. We're running on those neurons in some way. But we're not the state of those neurons at any particular time either. We're more than that. It has to be the case that, that, that a human being, a, a person, is abstract in some way. We're not purely physical. We are, as we say, the software. And the software is not purely physical. It's over and above the atoms, the matter in which it is instantiated. In the same way that the numeral for the number five is not identical to the number five, it's a representation of that abstract object five that exists in abstract space in some way. And there are many different instances, there are many different ways of representing that number using different numerals, different symbols. 
but they're all equivalent to the thing they represent, but they are not the thing that they represent. That thing that they represent is an abstract object, not the physical instantiation thereof. So too with a person, a person is an abstraction that is running upon a brain. But it can't be an abstraction in the same way that the number five is an abstraction. After all, the number five exists out there in abstract space. But we don't. We exist here in the physical, real world. In theory, our instantiation could be in silicon. It could be in some other kind of media. But at the moment, it's in the wetware of the neurons. But it can't be the case that we are to be identified with the neurons, obviously, because of that fact, because we could be instantiated in something else. But we're not equivalent to the abstraction. After all, the abstraction of the number five is an unchanging, perfect ontological object. There is no error in it. It is that thing that's out there that we cannot represent except imperfectly in the physical world. But a person doesn't exist out there in abstract space. It doesn't really make any sense because if it did exist out there in abstract space, then it would have to be a perfect, unchanging thing out there in abstract space. This is what Platonism is kind of about, that there are these perfect objects in abstract space that are unchanging. But a person is clearly changing over time. Is it the case that we are the one exception to the rule where we're the perfect abstraction which nonetheless is able to change over time? I don't know if that makes sense. But we are an abstraction, but not an abstraction in the sense that the number five is an abstraction or any other kind of abstraction is an abstraction because other abstractions are platonic ideals and those platonic ideals are unchanging. But we change over time as well as remain constant in certain ways. This constant idea of being able to create explanations is the one constant we carry through from the moment of us becoming people through to our death. We are generating explanations over time. We're conscious of the physical reality in which we exist. But we also, by virtue of the fact we are generating these explanations, changing our minds, creating new ideas in our minds. Those ideas themselves are also abstractions abstractions that are being instantiated in our minds in various ways. So a person is this very unusual blend between, perhaps different from, physical things and abstract things. Perhaps it's a third kind of thing. This weird interplay between the physical and the abstract. Because as we are running, as we are this mind on this brain that's running, the software that's running on the hardware, we are not to be identified with the particular physical instantiation we have at the moment, namely our neurons, or the particular state we have at any one moment in time. After all, we were the same person yesterday and there will be the same person tomorrow. Modulo minor changes, but the person itself remains the same in some ways despite the fact they're changing as well. We're abstract, but we're not abstract in the same way that platonic ideals are abstract. So this is where we are really reaching the limits of what we understand a person to be. And this is a very interesting area for people to research. I must credit David Deutsch with some brief but private conversations I had with him on precisely this topic, and he inspired me to think along these lines and to continue to think along these lines about what the nature of a person really is. Or when I say really is, what a better understanding, a better explanation of what a person is. We don't have much of one yet, but we know it comes in the nexus of these things that I've talked about. And importantly, it comes to bear on how it is that us as people existing as minds, running on brains, come to be, come to be these abstract things that seem to need a physical instantiation of a kind, which is a thing that allows for us to both change and remain the same over time. Now, there is a, another way in which physics comes to bear on personhood, and I think it illustrates a deep way in which we are both the same person as we step into the river a second time, and yet also different. And this is where we consider the nature of personhood in the context of the multiverse understanding of quantum theory, and in particular, David Deutsch's invocation of the term fungibility. 
Right now, as each of us occupy a place at a particular time, according to the classical picture that physics gives us, we are, in truth, uncountably many fungible copies of ourselves. David Deutsch's chapter on the multiverse explains more about this. And my series on the multiverse, which is part of the Beginning of Infinity podcast series, goes into this in some detail. We have hitherto always understood that to be a person, much like to be a book on a shelf, is to be a single object occupying a single place at a single time in a single universe. But quantum theory, the most modern variant of quantum theory being the multiverse, and the most modern variant of that, Deutsch's conception of fundamental entities, tells us that this is not so. There is not one electron there in that place, but infinitely many fungible instances, all in the same place, at the same time, but occupying different universes, and which, at some point in the future, will partition themselves into measures, different groups, each of infinitely many fungible instances. So too with the book on the shelf, and so too with a person. As you sit where you are, hearing these words... You extend across the multiverse. You too are a multiversal object. You have a singular conscious experience, but that experience is occupying many different universes. And when something different can happen, whether by your conscious choice or the quantum action of an event where there existed multiple possibilities, those instances differentiate. You differentiate, in a sense, but you remain only ever conscious of one measure of those instances, not all of them. But those other instances, those other copies different to you, and you, form a continuum across the multiverse, a continuously and smoothly varying transition of instances from you through to instances of you that are doing something completely different, like turning off this podcast or bumping into a stranger who will turn out to be a lifelong friend, or being interrupted by a call that gives you the opportunity you have been waiting for. And there remains you, still listening to this, that is still infinitely many, fungible, perfectly identical copies. The experience you are still conscious of, constantly in a state of flux, but at the same time your conscious experience remaining singularly about the experience of only one measure of instances, while the other instances are conscious of something else. It is they who do not step back into the river, but you do, and you are the same in that sense. They are different, and yet you are different too because your memory is a constant and a change, like some kind of linear relationship progressing through time, copies of yourself that are not you, and you are not conscious of going to do otherwise, and you doing what you do, your consciousness being the constant, and though what it is conscious of, all the different times and spaces will continue to change, but you will remain in lockstep with all those other uncountable fungible instances of yourself, those fungible instances that are you, As could be seen, if you had some access to a God's eye view of the multiverse, you would see you as uncountably infinite, fungible instances of yourself in the same place at the same time, but differentiating over time. This is a remarkable fact about what a person is in this worldview, an evolved entity of a kind, which can compute explanations and comprehend them of the world they find themselves in, explanations which then give them choices so that fungible instances of themselves differentiate into different measures, some larger or some smaller, depending on the personality of that person, those more like you of greater measure, those unlike you of smaller measure. And so, not really you at all, but so long as they remain conscious, able to create new explanations, which give them choices about what to do next. We are the nexus of the threads of the fabric of reality, some strange loop or knot in that fabric, both unravelling and becoming more entwined over time, something we are not yet to fully understand, but which we now have a scientific and philosophic glimpse into the deepest mysteries about.